Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Vice Chair Nicole Small of the Detroit Charter Commission and Horace Sheffield, a social activist and media personality, explain why the Detroit mayor's land value tax proposal has become a source of legislative division and mistrust. Additionally, Kevin Martis, the co-founder of the Our Home, Our Voice Coalition, describes the local opposition to state-controlled siting for large-scale wind and solar projects. Now, here's MERS reporter Samantha Schreiber and editor Kyle Malin. Thank you, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. This is your host, Sam Schreiber, and we are commencing our weekly roundtable where professionals from across Michigan's political scene give their unfiltered takes and opinions on what's going on in the news. For today's discussion, we are joined by Horace Sheffield, a Detroit social activist and pastor. Hello. How are you doing, Horace? I'm good. And you? I'm doing great. And we also have Vice Chair Nicole Small of the Detroit Charter Commission. Hey, hey, Nicole, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So let's begin today with the land value tax plan. Mayor Mike Duggan's office zooms in on how this would cut property taxes by about 17 percent for 97 percent of Detroit homeowners starting in 2025 and will substantially ramp up taxes on vacant land and blight properties in the city. However, the proposal needs to be approved by the legislature before it can appear on the ballot for Detroit voters. And although I don't personally cover the state house, the photos from the floor quite frankly look like a chaotic Renaissance painting. Uh, people are staring off into the distance. People are being, you know, entering debates around this on the floor. Uh, it made on the voting board last Wednesday, but was taken down because the 56 votes were not there. Now, my question, and I'll start with you, Nicole, why is this so controversial? What is the holdup here? So back in 2019, um, there was a push just through the city of Detroit for the the whole 600 being overtaxed over $600 million. That story had hit um, from the Detroit news. Um, so there were several of us and I helped organize some people to come down to push city council that instead of giving away, you know, all of these tax abatements to figure out a way to give out tax credits. Uh, to make a lot of the homeowners whole. And then there was another proposal for those who residents who had actually lost their home. Um, with that said, that's still a very sore spot for a lot of us Detroiters who have suffered from being overtaxed for quite some time. So with the land tax value, in, in my opinion, it's the same old story is that there's a narrative that's always put out from the city that there's going to be a solution or you know, something is always going to help Detroiters to live a better quality of life, which I'm always in favor of. The problem is, is that when you read the devil is in the details and when you read the details, the language is always very ambiguous. Right. Um, of course, if we could get a 17 percent tax credit across the board, I'd be the first one championing it. But when I read the language, that's not necessarily going to happen based on the way that it's written. Um, so for me and others, you know, if they can go back to the table and tighten up the language and put in some real safeguards, absolutely. But there's no way in this context can that happen for us to receive this tax credit. And then there's another thing. The narrative is that, oh, well, once you pass this, Detroiters are going to get 
20% reduction in their taxes. And we're hearing that from people who work for the mayor. That's problematic. Again, that's not the way it works. Uh, it'll be implemented in tiers, which is typically how it's done. That's not being explained to Detroiters. So if you have to sell something to them, then sell them the truth. And so that's that's really the problem is that, and, and let me just be honest, there's not a lot of trust there. From the ARPA dollars to uh, a lot of other tax abatements and stuff, we never see the people who benefit actually ensure their side of the deal. But what are your takes on it, Horace? Well, first of all, I relish the opportunity to partially agree with Nicole. I think that it's it's an opportunity in concept to kind of rectify what she already addressed, the fact that we were overtaxed for years. Significant number of folks lost their homes, has been proven. Had the Texas been equitable and fair, many of those folks would have never lost their homes, uh, never to be recovered, never redressed. As Nicole mentioned, no way to make them whole or to go back and say we were wrong. Here, here is at least some form of restitution. But the concept of a 17% decrease in taxes palatable. The problem is, as she said, it's not really clear how that would happen. And then and then the other part of it for me, and I think Nicole may appreciate this, is that the folks who've got significant real estate don't pay the fair share of taxes. I mean, we know there's some developers and some companies that went for years without paying property taxes at all. You know, and, and so why are only certain folks, why only junkyards, why only certain entities going to be the ones that bear the brunt of folks who have vacant land? What about increasing taxes on folks, even if they've had abatements to, to generate the revenue? So I think the idea is that taxpayers ought to get a reduction, that people have been paying taxes for 45 years and can't even get a grant to fix their roofs because they can't afford to pay taxes and fix the roofs at the same time. And I just want to point out um, one piece of this, too. Um, there is this narrative that, you know, we won't have these meals. Well, two things. So the NEZ will be eliminated through this. I mean, I don't live in a in an NEZ zone. Um, NEZs usually are implemented in more affluent neighborhoods. And I think one thing that uh, Horace and I can agree on, those people who are overtaxed and lost their home, a lot of them were not in those affluent neighborhoods. But the way the tax structure works, you know, it does go through the state. They have to do the reimbursements. Let's just be honest um, when you have NEZs because there's a loss of, of tax revenue. Um, so let's just say that comes back to the city. Where is Where are our insurances that the money that now will be generated to come to the city from the tax revenue, that that will be then given directly to the people and they will have a tax reduction. And I, I definitely want to, you know, say this one part is that it's amazing to me how someone like Dan Gilbert can come to the table and ask for egregious tax abatements for a hundred foot skyscraper. And we give him all the money that he asks for, right? All, all of the tax credits and the tax subsidies. Then he comes back and asks for more money and to build only like 60 something floors. And that is done expeditiously. But when the people who are aggrieved in the city of Detroit are saying, hey, I need some relief with the money that I'm paying into the city, you know, it's always a long drawn out process. And again, the language is always very ambiguous. Quick point before she goes, because she mentioned the fact about people who could afford taxes, even those who uh, were able to afford. For example, I've been in university district for 15 years. 
my house was overassessed, and she's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I work and I'm able to pay that difference, but there, there was, there was no consideration for us in being overcharged uh, taxes. So I think it's unjust. It was unfair what happened to all Detroiters. I think we need to look at how we're going to make this a more equitable system. And my main concern is this. I, I, I'm on Grand River, Wyoming, where the Sheffield Center is. I have people in that neighborhood, Mother Powell, who've been there 45 years, business owner, who can barely afford to pay her taxes on fixed income, and her taxes have gone up. So we need to find some way, and particularly since the tax base now is not the lion's share of the city's resources. But Horace, uh, my understanding is, is that all taxpayers in Detroit, all homeowners now, are going to get at least um, their taxes staying the same. And most are going to get some kind of tax decrease. Isn't some kind of decrease better than no decrease at all? Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I said in theory, I, I, mean, I would love to get 17 percent off my taxes. Um, you know, we're still under the Headley Act. So, by the way, I was fortunate enough to go back when my house was over assessed, you know, and, and, and appeal my tax, uh, my taxation and have it decrease, uh, based on a variety of facts. Yes. 17% is, is really lucrative. I mean, I'm still concerned about the people who have multiple lots, things of that nature, but I think, you know, to Nicole's point, there needs to be more clarity on this. And I think the fact that the legislature has, has been slow to act on this, probably indicates that they're not necessarily certain that all of this has been flushed out either. And then if I'm a business person, if I'm a business person, I, I would imagine that I, you know, a 50%, 100% increase in my taxes uh, is, is, is pretty hard pill to swallow all at once. And then, Nicole, the legislature is, was trying to move this as quickly as possible, but they're getting roadblocks. And then the mayor wanted to get this on the ballot as soon as the 2025 mayoral election doesn't look like that's going to happen. So it looks like the mayor wants to get this tax cut through as soon as possible, but but he's running into roadblocks. And that's why he's running into roadblocks. You know, um, a lot of our experiences for a lot of people who are opposing the land tax value, and I can't speak for everyone, you know, some people just don't trust it. Again, I'm more about making sure that we have some safeguards in the language that actually make sure that this thing actually comes into the into fruition the way it's being presented to the people. And I and I have to disagree with you. For people who have lost their homes, for those of us who have been overtaxed for years, which which is don't get me wrong, a little different of a situation because this isn't going to be the overall solution to it. No, just to give me one or two percent, no, it's not fair. And and let me let me tell you this if we go ahead and we push this and we support this, then there's going to be more of a roadblock at the city and the state level because they're going to say, well, we supported you and the people wanted this land tax value. And it'll be harder for us to negotiate a real resolution at the table. And, and that's my problem. And let's talk about if the mayor does put it on the ballot. Oh, it's going to pass. Let me tell you, millages pass all the time. There's, again, a narrative that, oh, well, then we won't have to pay any millage. They're going to bring up another meal. There's always a millage coming around and it always passes. And the reason why is because the people like the mayor and corporate interests with money, they have the dollars to present a false narrative through mailings, through media, and they send their people out there who the people trust. And it's never it's never the truth. So it, it will pass. But unbeknownst to a lot of the people who will support it, they will not get the results that they believe that they will. 
I always feel so bad at trying to make people utilize a crystal ball on this show because obviously watch something happen this week and just feel kind of like a clown by this episode. But I do wonder, I mean, do you think, let's say this does pass in the state house, what do you think it's going to be like in the state Senate? And if it doesn't pass there, do you think Governor Whitmer would be willing to spend her political capital on bringing a special session for this after they adjourn next month? Uh, I, I would like to hear both, you know, Horace, Nicole, your takes on it, as well as you, Kyle, as someone who's been around here for a while. Who would you like to go first? Oh, how about you, Horace? Yeah, I, I don't think anybody's going to fall on the sword for this. Uh, I think this is um, a variety of things. I think the mayor is interested in running for governor. He has a popular candidate, you know, who's statewide elected already. And, and so he, you know, wants to do something that would show up his, you know, his constituent base in Detroit. But I, I think he's going to have a tough road in the legislature. I think it's going to be even tougher in the Senate. And I don't think the governor is going to come in and bail him out. I just I don't, don't think so. I agree. I mean, I, I don't see it even getting to that point. What I could see happening is uh, before the mayor pushed for a $250 million uh, bond that he was pushing uh, around the time that we were talking about, we wanted justice uh, for being overtaxed. He let that go and then he brought it back in another form. Um, he's very methodical when it comes to that. So if he wants it, I think that it'll just show up in a different way. Do I see the Senate and the governor again, like Horst just said, laying on a sword? Absolutely not. I just think it would be presented in a different way. Well, I, I think that uh, the speaker has made this known that this is a top priority for him. And I think he was only a couple votes short this past week. And I believe he can find the votes to get it through the House. At that point, it becomes a negotiating tool uh, with the Senate. The Senate just passed that uh, drug board that you talked about last week on the podcast. And I know the, the Senate uh, Democrats really like that. And the um, the House Democrats, uh, some members there aren't as excited about it. Uh, so there would have to be some negotiations there. And um, if they can if they can reach that kind of agreement, then I could see it going through. But, you know, the drug board would have to get through without Republican support. They didn't get any support in the the Senate. Um, so you'd need all the Democrats yeah. on board. So that's going to it's going to it's going to be a heavy lift. I, it could happen, but it's going to be a heavy one. I, I do want to confirm something about the state Senate's makeup. Uh Senator Santana and Senator Chang, they're the only two lawmakers in that chamber who both represent Detroit and actually live in the city, correct? I yes. believe that's true. Yes. yes that's yeah. True. I mean, I wonder, I wonder if when it comes to the land value tax issue, if it does make it to the Senate, will the ball be in their court completely, Santana and Chang's? Well, I don't know who would carry his water, but I, I do think that, I just think that, you know, th this is going to have a tough sale. Uh, and I'm not certain that what I know about my senator, uh, Santana, who is a hardworking uh, person uh, in her community, that this is something she would she would, you know, spend her political capital uh, trying to push. I agree. So with that being said, who's ready to uh, move on to uh, Rashida Tlaib and Sri Tanadar? Obviously, there is a lot going on in the political water over there, um, especially right now with all of the headlines surrounding Israel versus Palestine. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, who is the daughter of Palestinian immigrants, she received a lot of criticism for her response to the October 7 attacks in southern Israel by Hamas. 
Uh, and overall, in her statement, she kind of talks about how it is because of the system, this ap apathy system has created a suffocating, dehumanizing conditions that can lead to resistance is ultimately what she said. Uh, now she's receiving a lot of significant backlash on those remarks. What does this moment mean for her current political fate, especially someone who is both controversial and has a pretty big loyal following in her district? Well, I'll, I'll go again quickly. I mean, you know, timing is everything, right? I mean, you you don't take your bride to, to buy her a um, wedding dress and tell her she needs to lose weight. I mean, it's, it's bad timing. I mean, there's some essence of truth. Uh, I favor two-state solution, and I do believe that Israel uh, on occasion has been as barbaric and violent uh, and non-humanizing as uh, we see in this attack, although this went much further. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's her right to herald the cause of her people, but this was not the right time to do it. Uh, I think Reverend Sharpton has struck a, a brilliant chord uh, in his condemnation of what's going on, but has always been there to support the Palestinian rights but at the same time, you know, when something like this happens, we have to know what to say and when to say it. I also think that sometimes the media looks for somebody to jump on. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if, if, if the punishment necessarily fits the crime because she advocates on behalf you know, of her people. I've not supported her, um, but I certainly give her her right of freedom of speech. I'm curious if you think, Nicole, that she's going to face a tougher primary this go around than she would normally because of uh, her standing up for Palestine the way she has. So, I mean, the reality of it is I think that that's a very tough position to be in. Uh, she has family over there, family who has helped to raise her and had a significant influence on her life. I think that this is a situation where people should manage their expectations. I didn't expect her to um, take a strong position. Let me say that either way. I, I hear her statements, but I think that to be honest with you, it was a statement that where you had to say something. I don't think that she had the grace to hold off any longer. People were really pushing for her to make a statement. And that's just how it is. I don't know what she could have said to make everyone happy. Um, and that situation is unfortunate, but she did run for election. She knew that being a Palestinian running in a predominantly African-American community that she was going to receive a lot of backlash. And I think that some people are really, uh, for several reasons, pushing her to make a statement. But again, that's the position that she assumed. I think that there's a lot of danger that can become, that come behind the statements that she makes in this situation. Not that she hasn't been threatened before, but I really don't know what statement she could have made to make everyone happy. It's a lot going on over there. Both groups are, they're, they're very strong-willed in their position. And we do know about the history of what has been going on uh, with the Israelis. And now the, the, the Hamas group is, you know, taking another position. And there's going to be a lot of casualties in this war. Whether she will be one or not, I don't know. Uh, Self-interest should never take second seat. You know, I mean, you have to always remember that she is Palestinian, so... Her sentiments and her sympathy will be with her people. Again, it's bad timing. But, you know, in terms of her being hurt in the district, I don't know. I mean, there, there are far more things that people are concerned about with respect to her lack of participation when she has a majority black 
district that she's more concerned about the Middle East. She's more concerned about her community than she is predominantly black one. If that's not enough, put her in danger. I don't know what is. And they reelected her knowing that. I right. mean, let's right. just be honest. In a, in a super majority black district, she could not have won that, that seat without carrying Detroit like a lot of them can. Right. And so right. if that's our decision, how I don't see African-Americans being so upset that now they're not going to support her because of what's going on over there with the Hamas and the Israelis uh, versus feeling like that they're being, you know, um, their issues are being set to the side because she's worried about her own people. So if that doesn't get you not to support someone, I highly doubt that this will. Well, let's talk about Sri Tanadar then. Uh, what do you think about his prospects going forward? He just had his former communications director go on Twitter or X recently and say he's basically running a shadow shop over there. He's more concerned about advancing his own public image than he is about serving constituents. Does he face a tougher primary challenge in 2024? Uh, start with you, Nicole. I'm still confused of how he got there. Um, his position that he has taken in this new role is no different, in my opinion, than than his conduct and his position that he took when he was in the House. Just to be honest with you, I haven't seen a shift to say, oh, you know, people have been bamboozled and this isn't who we thought that he was. I mean, he has always been someone that when he comes into the room, he wants to speak. He wants to be center of its attention. It's about him being elected. And we know that he has other political aspirations. And I think the Sri Tanadar will spend any amount of money and say whatever he needs to say to achieve that. And I think that that has always been his primary focus. So is he going to get a credible primary, you think, Horace? Well, first of all, let me confess, because in my tradition, if you don't confess, you can't be saved. Uh, I assisted him when he ran for governor. I thought it was should have meant challenge to uh, to our current governor, but I have not supported him since. In fact, to have a slogan, uh, it's no shree for me, no shree for me. The real tragedy is that uh, at one time we had two significant African-American congressional districts, uh, John Conyers in one, and of course, Charles Diggs and Crockett and so many others serving uh, significantly in the other. So I think, you know, we've got to come together as an African-American community and say, you know, we ought to have one of these districts represented by a person of color. He does not represent our interests. I mean, he's gone from going, wanting to be a member of the Black Caucus to having his own caucus, you know. And I just think that, you know, in terms of constituent services, that we don't get much from him at all. Uh, he's always been a paper lion and, you know, the exposure of who he is and what he is, that was done, you know, when he ran. I mean, so I just think people have to come together, you know, even folks that always agree, at least agree on who we need to have represent us. All these salient issues that you're raising, a congressional purpose person in my day, uh, Charles Diggs, who I work for, would weigh in, would weigh in on whether or not they should support the 17 percent property tax reduction and, and all of that kind of stuff. We hear nothing, absolutely nothing from him about anything that affects us in the city of Detroit. Just to confirm, I mean, did everyone see the Adam Abusala Twitter thread that was his former, his former comms director? I looked for it. I couldn't find it. Yeah, so I do, I do kind of want to read some of the things okay. that probably really stood out to me in this. 
basically talks about now let's talk about how Sheree had a hard time retaining staff that when this comms director left there's five people on staff meanwhile for contacts you know congresswoman dingle had you know 16 so this is when it gets into a whole other direction of just there not being staff there he goes i once attended an event with Sheree in detroit when we were walking up to the church he saw a group of black men outside he looked at me and said Will you take a bullet for me? I looked at him and said, absolutely not. He was pissed. Shree had a hard time trusting black women. When he would hire black women to deputy positions and they were all qualified to be director or chief of staff, he wouldn't promote them and would keep those positions open until he found a man, preferably white. And another one is Shree would always ask me to follow what Rashida and AOC were doing so he can be popular like them and gain followers. He called me once past midnight to ask me why AOC had over 10 million followers and he only had 303,000. So I guess, you know, my question for you, Horace, is someone who did kind of work with Shree in some capacity. Does any of this surprise you? Well, I mean, I think when, when he was running for governor, some of this was guarded. Um, and in fact, I mean, the core team, many of whom I brought to his you know, team were African-Americans. Even Sharita, uh, can't think of her last name, out of New Jersey, who had run Patterson's campaign, uh, did media. So he spent a lot of money with black folks, uh, whether or not he trusted them or had these phobias that you mentioned. But but look, th- this is the kind of thing that I'm glad to hear because I'm going to I'm going to be on the rooftop shouting it. I mean, I just think it's time for Shree to go. And uh, if I got to put up billboards, no Shree for me, uh, I'm going to do it. I mean, he's not one of ours, but that doesn't mean necessarily that he can't do for us. There have been other folks in our community. Phil Hart, great U.S. senator, was not black, uh, not from Detroit, but did more for civil rights than, you know, than, than many. So it's not the color of his skin. It's not his culture. But as you now point out, it's his character. And I think, you know, and we're about to wrap up here, but Nicole, you know, hearing some of that commentary on social media, what are your thoughts? And do you think that is he done or could he still get away with a victory in 2024? Um, So I think the issue is not whether or not he hires African-Americans. It's about the positions he put African-American women in. And that's a a totally different um, ballgame, which from some of his campaign running for the House and the Senate, I would probably say those statements are probably very true. <clears throat> With that said, look, the onus is on us, the Black community, especially Black Detroiters and, and some of those smaller surrounding areas. Um, we have some work to do. And I, I will say, and I've said this before, we dropped the ball before. I don't know how you can have so many people so passionate about, about having representation. And I'm unapologetic. I'm just going to let you know, there's no way in the world we should have the percentage of African Americans voting and making decisions on leadership. And we can't find one Black person in Detroit or in, in some of the surrounding areas to represent us. That's problematic. Again, that's an issue that we need to address, right? And then I do agree with Horace that a lot of that is probably because we didn't unite around what was important and staying focused. What do I think about Shree? I think Shree is is very strategic in one area in identifying uh, which Black people he could get to support them and what it is that he needs to get the, give them to get their support. And it has worked for him. And yeah. it will continue to work until we get ourselves together. And that's our problem. And that's our responsibility. 
in my and, and to that and to that point, you know, I, I was, you know, I obviously came to me when he decided to run for state rep and in terms of the call saying that he that he knows what he's doing. And and the first thing he laid on the table was that in fifty seven out of fifty nine precincts where he ran, he had won. I mean, he uh, he beat you know only two that he lost was University District and uh, you know Green Acres or whatever. So he knew that he had strong support in that area, uh, and that's why he moved. And I mean, it's just you know it's it's complicated. But the point is, we got to unite around someone that can win, and we don't need all these people telling us they're doing it for us. Let us decide who's doing it for us. Thank you so much, Horace Sheffield, a Detroit social activist and pastor, as well as Vice Chair Nicole Small of the Detroit Charter Commission. Thank you for joining us on today's MERS Monday Roundtable discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Everything is everything. I don't really want to say. Everything is everything. So joining us now for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast is Lenaway County Commissioner Kevin Martis, who is also the spokesperson and one of the founders of the Our Home, Our Voice Coalition. Uh, it is described as a 100% grassroots organization of 800 to 900 various local community members uh, who stand in opposition toward various legislation in Lansing. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. And could you just summarize what exactly is this coalition and what is the end game here? Sure. Well, we're a bipartisan coalition. And let me first offer the caveat that I am a Lenawee County Commissioner, but my comments today should not be construed as being on the behalf of Lenawee County, even though they have endorsed a number of the same positions that our home, our voice is endorsed. But um, we're a group, bipartisan, um, strictly grassroots, no uh, industry funding of any kind. And we're dedicated to preserving local control of land uses such as Airbnbs, which often called short-term rentals, aggregate extraction uh, industry, and as well as utility scale, wind, solar, and storage. A lot of critics who are both advocating for things such as a state-level system for siting solar and wind farm projects. A lot of them might look at this coalition and be like, well, is it an environmental issue? Is it because you don't like clean energy? What is your response to people that would critique an operation like this? Sure. Well, of course, our supporters are diverse in their opinions because we have people from the far environmental left to you know the Trump right, if you will. But we're not here saying we're for or against any of these land uses. We're saying it should be up to each individual community. But I agree with you, the the uh, canard that's placed out there constantly on the part of people like the Conservative Energy Forum and other groups like that is that there's this vast right-wing conspiracy against clean energy. And I gotta tell you, most of us in the rural townships don't have any objections to clean energy. None of us are particularly fans of coal-fired power plants. A lot of us have far fewer objections to gas-fired power plants, but in my own township of Riga, we opposed a gas-fired power plant that was proposed here because it was going to be sited on farm ground, just like the previous wind and solar projects well, were uh, that were proposed and rejected by the community. Uh, what drives the concern primarily with solar is that a quarter million acres of prime farm ground are being targeted for solar development. That's our big concern there. With wind energy, our concern is different. It's that the uh, proposed uh, regulations that most developers 
advance for these projects are out of touch with sound uh, science with respect to safety and, uh, and welfare of the people. Now, why don't you talk a little bit about your history on this subject and how you got involved, because you are not a Johnny-come-lately to this debate at all. Uh, in fact, you've had uh, some critical pieces written about you out in the, the uh, media space. Why don't you kind of clear the air, first of all, and talk about how you got into this issue? Sure. Well, I first entered the my township planning commission in Riga Township in Lenawee County in about 2005 just wanting to serve my community. Uh, we went through the somewhat contentious process of approving an ethanol plant, which did get constructed in our township. It is sad inoperable for a number of years, but we did host that for over a decade. And along comes a group of folks wanting to develop a utility scale wind uh, farm in our township and a couple surrounding ones. At first we thought, well, no big deal. The longer we looked into it, we realized this uh, maybe was not a good fit for our community. Uh, we live in one of the flattest places in the state. Um, the visual impacts would be pronounced. And we're the number one or number two county in each uh, each year with respect to corn and soybean production. So our township decided ultimately that they wanted to take a strong stance and allow some wind energy, but probably under terms that the developers didn't find appropriate. So Exelon was the company promoting it along with Consumers Energy. They hired Truscott Rossman and ASGK Strategies and mounted a massive PR war. And ultimately the ordinance was placed on the ballot by the developers and their supporters. And we defeated those interests by nearly a two to one ratio. Turns out I was fairly glib and articulate and other communities that had similar concerns started calling me. And my phone has really never stopped ringing in the last 14 years. Now, yes, I have been accused of being funded by big tobacco, big nuclear, big gas, big oil. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. The truth is I receive no money from any outside sources and I've never even been offered any. And frank frankly, I wouldn't take it. I want to have a pure, clean message that I'm advocating on the behalf of the folks. And let's talk about your history because there have been many other local ordinance proposals that have been on the ballot regarding wind energy and your batting average in those communities that asked for your advice has been pretty good. Well, more people have asked for my advice on the wind side than on solar. The, the, the solar fight is, the opposition in all places is organic, but it's exceedingly organic. I, I had really thought eight, 10 years ago that solar would maybe be much less contentious um, and because they're not five, 600 feet tall, right? But then when I saw the first proposals were 2,000 acres or three and a half square miles, I thought, well, why are we doing this? Wouldn't a 50 acre or 100 acre projects be a lot easier to sell? So yes, with respect to the referenda elections on wind energy in particular, there have been, I think, 29 referenda in a row on wind energy in Michigan, and the wind companies have not been able to win any of those referenda. It's not because I have some tremendous power. If I did, maybe Truscott Rossman would be writing me a big check because I could walk into a community meeting and for 25 minutes, you know, be a snake charmer and suddenly everybody swooned to my position. The truth is people are naturally dubious of this for obvious reasons. Three and a half square miles of solar is preposterous and five and 600 foot tall wind turbines being sited in a township that had a zoning ordinance on the books prohibiting structures taller than 40 feet without any drama for decades, of course people are concerned. We just had a solar referendum in Palmyra Township uh, next to me here where I, I live, and the solar developer spent $70,000 on PR in a township referendum. The folks spent a couple thousand bucks. 
and the referendum was successful in protecting the farm ground in a three to one ratio, 75 to 25%. You know, if wind and energy had obvious benefits as perceived by local communities, you wouldn't need to fight so hard to sell it. But the truth is, people object to these things for very natural and obvious reasons. But worse, with the respect of solar, we have wonderful places for solar to be sited. We have thousands of acres of brownfields. We have 1,200 miles of MDOT rights of way. The state of Michigan owns what, four and a half million acres of ground. 5% of that ground alone would be more than enough to take all the solar that's being proposed right now. But we're strictly targeting farm ground here. And that's the part I just don't understand. And I do want to ask, I mean, how many communities are represented in this coalition and where are they most majorly located? Well, I want to say 10 years ago, the, I, had, I was involved with another group called the Interstate Informed Citizens Coalition. And I think we had support in about eight different counties because wind really only went in a few different places because of the resource. And how do you define support? I mean, my word, people identify with us, I guess. I mean, you know, we don't have a membership list. You don't have to sign a card or swear an oath, but people who support our activities. Solar has changed everything because solar is everywhere from the Keweenaw all the way down to where I live on the state line and everywhere in between. We think there's, we have supporters or people who are connected to us in at least 50 counties right now. And solar guys have just gone everywhere. And and we saw that in the hearing last Wednesday because almost every rep in the room except a few from the urban areas were being touched by this issue. Uh, what's wrong with putting solar panels on farmland if the farmer involved is interested in selling? Well, first of all, everybody has, would like to be able to do whatever they want with their ground. Everybody would, but we have zoning in these communities and the zoning has been put in place without much drama in, um, for decades until this land use came along. Zoning by definition tells people what they can and cannot do with their private property. If it doesn't do that, then it's not zoning. It's not a regulation. So the state and Farm Bureau and all kinds of other entities for decades and decades have pressed the agenda of ag land preservation, ag land preservation. And most rural communities have adopted uh, land use regulations that inhibit the construction of most things other than homes and, and ag, you know, ag facilities on, in ag districts because we have a long policy of preserving agriculture. So now I hear the developers say, well, this is going to be great for the local farmer. Oh, look at the amount of money. They can make much more money with this land use on their farm ground than other land uses. Well, guess what? Farmers can make more money by selling their land for any other land use than agriculture. That's because we have a cheap food policy in the United States. We deliberately keep the value of farm ground low, and we offset that cost to the farmer by giving them tremendous tax benefits and policy benefits across the board. They've been paid up front for not paying personal property tax or not paying sales tax or not paying fuel tax. You know, their property tax is rebated to them through the PA116 program. I, I wish them well for that. I want my farm friends to prosper. Uh, but they have already been paid up front for their loss of ability to convert this to other uses. And solar is just one of the many uses that most communities have decided they should not be allowed to convert it to. One interesting point I do want to make here is that it seems that it's not just the solar and wind policy reforms that you're opposed to. It's also establishing a state central system for regulate, regulating the aggregates industry and gravel mining, correct? Yeah, now, across the board. Do you would you say 
that there's an element of hypocrisy at hand when it comes to what people say needs more local control and what they say doesn't need more local control? Absolutely. And it's bipartisan. Um, the, the Republicans who generally are strongly on the side of local control, uh, you know, took away communities' rights under their leadership to restrict the use of plastic bags in shop, in, you know, in grocery stores and so forth. Um, uh, Representative Joey Andrews uh, fought hard for local control on the side of Airbnbs or short-term rentals, says it's all about the people. Now he's a strong advocate for, ab you know, abrogating that local control with respect to wind and solar and battery storage. So yes, neither party has been consistent. But our position is this, in Lenawee County, we have six townships so far that have taken a look at solar on farm ground and they've said, we will allow it, but in small percentages and not in massive chunks. Monroe County next door, most of their townships have looked at it and said, we have a place for the solar. It goes on our industrial district, not on ag ground. It's an industrial use. But we have multiple townships in Lenawee County that are open to the use of solar and then they've written ordinances permitting that. Likewise with aggregate extraction, we have gravel and sand mining. I don't know if we have any, no, we don't limestones all to the east in Monroe County, where the, the aggregate extractors have been good neighbors and largely without objection. Now one's proposed near our, our Lake District in the Irish Hills area, and it's aroused strong opposition. Well, guess what? One size fits all doesn't work. I support those communities' ability to make that decision for themselves. I kind of want to run down some various policy proposals that are circulating right now. So, for example, the preemption stuff you talked about. Are you in support of lifting all of those environmental-related preemptions, especially when it deals with the plastic bags? Oh, well, our group has not taken a position on that because it's not in front of us. But personally, I will tell you, I think if Ann Arbor wants to ban the use of plastic bags, people in my township shouldn't have any say on that. But what about more on the labor side of things when it comes to the preemption on local municipalities setting their own wage and benefits requirements? What are your thoughts on that? We don't have any position on that. We're strictly looking at land use. Okay. And I would be a little bit curious, and I know I didn't prep you with this question beforehand, but I would just love to poke your mind at this. The SOAR fund, our current system with corporate invest investment and incentives, what are kind of your thoughts on that, especially when there's a lot of debates right now about local community interest in these projects? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really know much about that. I will tell you in general, I'm dubious of uh, of entities far removed from local units of government offering incentives for various things because the odds of legislators or commissioners like myself uh, being able to pick winners and losers in any space is pretty low. It's hard enough as an entrepreneur to successfully divine the market, let alone sit in a room full of your peers who may or might may not have any business experience and to try and guess which the best path forward is. So unfortunately, I don't have any specific data on that, but that's my general personal opinion. I just want to follow up on, on a point that Samantha brought up here about no political party being pure when it came comes to protecting uh, the rights of local governments. Do you just feel like that is become a position of convenience then for Republicans and Democrats? So they're in favor of local control when it fits what they really want to do. And, and how frustrating is that for somebody who actually is pure on wanting local control? Well, it is frustrating. I understand the reasoning behind it, right? It's it's uh, it's an easy sell. Oh, I support your right to do what you wish, but then you get caught. I mean, Sierra Club's in the same same uh, pinch right now. They strongly said aggregate mining needs to be controlled by the locals because they're best suited to protect the environment. But now they're full throated support for taking away local control of wind, solar, and storage. It is frustrating. Look, 
I say local control is the worst form of control, except for all the other options, right? I mean, <laughs> the other option is in this case, we heard testimony Wednesday from Chairman Dan Scripps from the Public Service Commission, who will become the de facto chairman of a statewide planning commission regulating wind, solar, and battery storage, admit that he didn't know what the, the current height is for modern wind turbines, admitted he didn't understand where the 55 decibel noise limit they're proposing for wind and solar came from, admits he doesn't understand where the setbacks come from. So that's a huge disconnect from each little local community. And I would say, you know, nobody's arguing for wind and solar to be unregulated. This is strictly a move to move only certain types of solar, utility scale, frankly, to, to the control of people who have no direct accountability to the people who will be hosting these things. That's a formula for failure. And it's been tried in Ohio. Ohio took that control for over a decade. And guess what? The people who had concerns about wind and solar, instead of going to their township hall, went to Columbus year after year after year. And finally, the state of Ohio passed a law a couple of years ago that gave, gives counties in Ohio the right to ban wind or solar in all or part of their communities with just simple majority vote. If Michigan takes this control under themselves, I think they will quickly tire of it. Do you think this all kind of comes down to speed of projects? I think this all comes down to the fact that there's a select group of, of um, renewable entry energy firms, primarily Apex Clean Energy, who see a window of opportunity with the Democrat majority right now to um, take control of this zoning to advance their own corporate interest. That's what this is about. They're joined at the hip to uh, the, the Michigan Conservative Energy Forum, and these guys work in lockstep. It was obvious to me that Apex was the only developer in the room at the hearing last week. This is, um, I didn't see the utilities make any public statements on this, at least in that hearing that I was at, which tells me something anyways. I would be much more comfortable if we were looking at legislation that at the same time took away local control from Ann Arbor and St. Joe and Grand Rapids for things like rooftop solar and ground mount solar, et cetera, et cetera. We're strictly looking at one narrow slice of the renewable energy industry, and in this case, utility scale, and is primarily driven, I think, by one developer as the other silently watch on. They see a window here. They don't know how long it'll be open, and they're trying to get the whole enchilada in one whack. Before we conclude here, I would be really curious, what would you illustrate as the possible dangers for local agricultural-based communities if especially this project siting legislation is approved? Well, I, I shared with Kyle, I think, a, a study that Deerfield Township had done by Dr. Stephen Miller at uh, Michigan State University. And we simply asked the question, look, 1,600 acres of solar are proposed in Deerfield Township. We know that will not produce crops anymore. We know those crops have a value both with respect to input cost and commodity value. We know there's a certain amount of labor that's committed to each of those uses, uh, each of those uh, farms. Can, can Dr. Miller put a value on what that um, loss would be to the agricultural side of the economy? Look, we know the leaseholders will profit, though I will say in right Deerfield Township's case, only one resident of Deerfield Township owned the property all of it, the other ground was owned by absentee landlords, all of it, not all of whom's primary income was farming. Bottom line is, over 35 years, Dr. Miller concluded that there would be somewhere between 50 and $60 million worth of losses to the agricultural community over that time. That's just one 1,600-acre project proposed for my county. I'm aware of 15,000 acres proposed for my county as it stands right now. Start to multiply those losses, and you see it 
a county whose energy economy is driven heavily by agriculture with respect to chemical sales, fertilizer sales, equipment sales, uh, grain elevators, et cetera, 15, 20,000 acres of solar here will have a devastating effect on the agricultural economy. And it's compounded by the fact that it concentrates so much wealth in a small number of landowners that they will now outbid your family farmers at the next auction sale, at the next land sale. And it's driving tenant farmers off the ground. They cannot afford to pay one to two thousand dollars per acre per year to raise corn, bean, and corn, beans, and wheat when they can only offer two hundred or two hundred and fifty acres. Very disruptive to the rural economy. And one quick question before we leave: Is your coalition working with any other kind of local community interest organizations or any well, other groups? Well, a number of us, of course, are members as a county commissioner of MAC, Michigan Association of Counties (MTA). I'm also a member of that. So, you know, we certainly are walking in the same path. We certainly communicate with each other, but I cannot say that we're aligned strategically necessarily, but we see our home, our voice is much more a citizen's voice. And whereas MTA and MAC are much more the official's voice. So we bring the folks, they bring the officials, even though we have a lot of officials involved with our home, our voice. And we're tickled to death that Farm Bureau agrees with us and is strongly opposed to this legislation, which is a good indication of where the majority of the farm community is on these bills. Thank you so much, Kevin Martis, the spokesperson of Our Home, Our Voice Coalition, and one of the coalition's co-founders. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you so much to our morning roundtable participants, Vice Chair Nicole Small of the Detroit Charter Commission and Horace Sheffield, a Detroit pastor, social activist, and media personality. Additionally, thank you to Kevin Martis, the co-founder of the Our Home, Our Voice Coalition. And as always, I'd love to give a tremendous thanks to MERS editor Kyle Malin. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Basher Audio and Okamis. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. So excited, enchanting me with everything you do, baby. Like rain pouring down, thunder in the middle of the night. Yeah, baby, you're enchanting me with everything you do.